Hello, and welcome to the podcast, Buffy and the Art of Stories, Season 3. If you love Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and you love creating stories, or just taking them apart to see how they work, you're in the right place. I am Lisa M. Lilly, author of the Awakening Supernatural Thriller series and the QC Davis Mysteries, and founder of writingasasecondcareer.com. Today we are talking about Bad Girls, Season 3, Episode 14, where Buffy tries out Faith's way of life, thinking, and slaying. In particular, we'll look at an interloper who brings out different sides of our core characters. Expressing theme and exploring philosophy through conflict, how this Faith-Buffy story differs from the Buffy-Kendra story, and two game-changers for the season and for Faith personally. As always, there will be no spoilers except at the end to talk about foreshadowing, but I'll give you plenty of warning. Okay, let's dive into the Hellmouth. Bad Girls aired on February 9, 1999. It was written by Douglas Petrie and directed by Michael Lang. And there is some great commentary by Douglas Petrie that I'll cover throughout the episode. We can see Bad Girls as part one of a two-part story with the next episode consequences, but each one stands alone, so for the most part, I am going to look at them that way. We start with opening conflict. That's that conflict that is there to draw the audience in. And sometimes it does set off or relate to our main plot. And sometimes it's separate. Here it is related in a way. And it also calls back to the episode with Gwendolyn Post. Because once again, we have Faith and Buffy fighting two vampires side by side. This time they are lying on the ground on their backs. These vampires are on top of them. And the vamps are wearing, uh, they look like some sort of vest or shirt with a pattern on it. So we know right away this is something somewhat different. And it turns out they belong to a vampire cult. As they're fighting, Faith asks Buffy if she ever had sex with Xander. And Buffy says no. She tells tells Faith she loves Xander, but she doesn't love Xander. Faith can't believe it. All that side-by-side action and Buffy never put in for a little after hours. Ugh. Buffy, though, once they finish staking the vampires, says she thinks that sex could ruin the friendship with Xander. And Faith tells Buffy she thinks too much. Buffy notices traces of another vampire, even though we don't see any around. And Faith asks how she knew, and Buffy says, I think too much. One more note about the similarity of this scene to the opening of Revelations where the new watcher or fake watcher came to Sunnydale is that in this episode we will again have a new watcher. So I think that that opening had to be purposeful with that callback. The vampires are on the other side of a tombstone and she says to Faith on the count of three, one, and Faith dives over the tombstone and attacks. The second vampire almost kills Buffy while Faith is fighting one, but Faith stakes him from behind and says, nicely diverted, B. Buffy responds, diverted, that was me fighting for my life, Miss Attention Span. And Faith says something like, well, she's not a planner. And Buffy points out, count of three isn't a plan, it's Sesame Street. The vampires who had these distinctive swords have been dusted, but their swords are also gone. At 2 minutes 4 seconds in, Mr. Trick drops those swords on the mayor's desk. He tells the mayor that the vampires are slain. There's a little bit of interplay about comics because the mayor is reading uh, the newspaper and talks about how he loves Family Circus. Trick likes Marmaduke because no one can tell that dog what to do. Alan, the mayor's deputy tries to take part in the conversation and volunteers that he likes the comic, Kathy. There is an awkward dead silence, and Alan changes the subject and says, uh, okay, what do we do about these swords? 
The mayor says they have to handle it. The dedication is coming up and it's very important. And Allen says, well, maybe the mayor should postpone the dedication. And the mayor glares at him. And Shrick says that he believes the mayor hates that idea. The mayor then says uh, after the 100 days starts, he will be on a higher plane. And he tells Trick to watch these vampires. And also to see that the information reaches the Slayers and goes on, with any luck, they'll kill each other and everyone's a winner. Everyone, of course, meaning me. And he laughs. So we have had two conflicts already in the first few minutes. Alan suggests, well, maybe they ought to postpone the dedication and gets a glare. And Trick says he believes the mayor hates that idea. The mayor tells Alan that after the 100 days, he'll be on a higher plane, instructs Trick to watch these vampires, find out what he can, and see that the information reaches the Slayers. And the mayor says something like, with any luck, they'll kill each other and everyone's a winner. Everyone, of course, meaning me. And he laughs. So we have had two conflicts already, a somewhat minor one between Faith and Buffy over their fighting styles and perhaps their their way of life and approach to sex and love. As to the demon plot here, we have had the vampire attack with these swords disappearing, and now we know there is some plan the mayor has. While he's talking, the mayor wipes his hands with the towelette. He also commented about Marmaduke. He doesn't like that one because the dog is so unsanitary, always sitting on the furniture. In the commentary, writer Doug Petrie said this was a fun running joke that the mayor, who is this villain, is afraid of germs. And they said it was poking fun a bit at David Greenwald, one of the producers who is somewhat of a germaphobe. We go to the credits, and we come back at 4 minutes 42 seconds in. This is where normally I would expect to see the inciting incident or story spark that sets our main plot rolling, because usually we see that 10% through any story. Here, I don't see any one particular event because when we come back, we have this conversation between Buffy and her friends that is mostly unrelated to our main plot. Willow is going through envelopes with acceptance letters from an impressive list of colleges. She's very excited. Xander asks if anyone else is intimidated. He's anticipating slips of paper with the word no scrawled in crayon. As we assures him that they're typing those letters these days. Cordelia walks up and says how great it is that Xander is planning life as a loser. Because most people just let it happen, but Xander's really taking charge. He makes fun of her clothes suggesting she start a line of hooker wear. And she responds, I could dress more like you, but oh, my father has a job. Petrie commented that it was really fun to write for Cordelia because he got to write all these mean things and have her say them. And he also pointed out her motivation that she is so mean to Xander, both because he broke her heart and he did it after she stepped down from her high social standing to be with him. Buffy uh, is also excited about the idea of college, but points out she has to pass her chem test first so she can graduate. And Willow tells her to come over that night. She'll help Buffy study. For now, Buffy is heading off to talk to Giles, and Willow mentions having seen him earlier and that he has looked better. At seven minutes in, we switch to the library. Wesley is unpacking books in the background. He is our new watcher. He's in a suit. He looks very starched and pressed and official. He is in the background while Giles half leans, half sits on the library table with his back to Wesley. As Wesley tells him that things have changed since Giles' day, there's much greater emphasis on field work. I see Wesley's arrival as the story spark or inciting incident here because it sets in motion, to a large extent, Buffy's rebellion with Faith 
and our vampire demon plot because he's the one who sends her after the vampires and makes a major mistake about the demon. So this is late to see the story spark, but... As I mentioned in the opening, it actually happened. Wesley came to Sunnydale before this episode started. Likewise, the other incident we could see as the spark would be this demon's acolytes coming to Sunnydale in search of an amulet. And that too happened before the episode started. So I think that is why, though we don't see either of those events happening, we only see a little bit later evidence of them. The plot really keeps moving on, despite not having that clear inciting incident or being able to pin one down, because a lot has happened already in seven minutes. I see this as the concept of starting in media res, which is starting in the middle of the story. And I wish I could remember the playwright's name who was famous for doing this. And often he really did not fill any backstory for the audience. He felt you just should start in the middle and let the audience figure it out and sometimes come up with their own reasons. Here, we do get a little more information about what happened filled in for us. Wesley uh, now says to Giles, it's not all books and theory nowadays. I have, in fact, faced two vampires under controlled circumstances, of course. And Giles says, you're in no danger of finding those here. Wesley responds, vampires? And Giles tells him, controlled circumstances. Hello, Buffy. As Buffy walks in, Buffy says, new watcher? And Giles answers, new watcher. Wesley introduces himself. He says it's nice to meet her. And Buffy ignores him, looks at Giles, and says, is he evil? Wesley's a bit taken aback by that, but then remembers Gwendolyn Post. But he assures her Giles checked out all his references. Buffy again asks Giles, is he evil? And this time Giles says, not in the strictest sense. Wesley asks about her patrolling. She's a bit short on details until Giles nods at her to tell her to cooperate. So she tells Wesley about the swords, one short, one long, with jewels on them that the vampires used. Wesley right away finds them in one of his books. He goes on and on about it, telling them there is a demon or was a demon, Balthazar, which is interesting because... A demon Balthazar was very key to plots uh, for more than one season in Charmed. So it makes me wonder if one or the other of the shows was paying tribute or uh, having a little fun by borrowing the same name. Wesley tells them that Balthazar was driven out of Sunnydale a hundred years ago, or actually the, the cult or acolytes that worship him were driven out. Balthazar was killed, but he had an amulet that a local landowner stole. Wesley thinks the acolytes want the amulet for sentimental reasons, and he tells Buffy that she will go to the cemetery and retrieve the amulet tonight. She's a little uh, not pleased with his manner, and he says, aren't you used to being given orders? And she tells him that Giles always says please when he sends her on a mission and gives her a cookie when she gets back. At 10 minutes, 10 seconds in, Faith walks into the library. Wesley says, ah, this is perhaps Faith. Faith says, new watcher. And Buffy and Giles respond together, new watcher. Faith says, screw that, rolls her eyes, and leaves. And Buffy says, now why didn't I just say that? At Giles' prompting, though, Buffy goes after Faith. In the schoolyard, she tells Faith she knows the new guy's a dork, but it's the job. They need to do what he says, and Faith says why. They can do whatever they want. They're the slayers, the chosen two. Why let Wesley take the fun out of it? And Buffy says something like, oh, that would be tragic, taking the fun out of beheading and killing. But Faith argues with her and says, it is fun, and you know you get off on it. And Buffy denies it, but smiles a little bit. 
So now we're approaching the one quarter mark of the episode, usually around 25% through, but sometimes later, more like a third of the way through, we get a major plot turn, the first one, and it should come from outside the protagonist, spin the story in a new direction, and raise the stakes. So we are almost there. It's 11 minutes, 41 seconds in. Faith says, hey, slang's what we were built for. If you're not enjoying it, you're doing something wrong. Doug Petrie said he saw these two characters, Faith and Buffy, as exploring different approaches to what it means to be a slayer, as well as how they embody that or act that out. Faith is all action and Buffy is about thinking first. And this made me think of Kendra and Buffy because as I was preparing this episode to record, I'm also finishing edits on the book edition of Buffy and the Art of Story, season two, the first half. So that'll cover episodes one through 13. And I'm in What's My Line, where Kendra, the new slayer, comes to Sunnydale and Kendra and Buffy, in one of the key scenes, are threatening Willie the Snitch. And Kendra is advocating for going back to the Watcher for orders rather than rushing off to try to save Angel. And Buffy says, I don't take orders. I do things my way. And Kendra says, no wonder you died. So when we juxtapose Buffy with Kendra, Buffy is the one who is more action-oriented, who is less likely to follow the rules or take orders. Kendra is all about the Slayer Handbook. If you remember, she reads all these dense texts. She jokes with Giles about footnotes. She grew up without friends, without her family. Everything was about being a slayer and following the rules. And Buffy was telling her, you need to tap into your emotions, imagination, and creativity. Now here we have Faith, who is even farther on that spectrum, who is all about instinct and action and not thinking and the kind of visceral pleasure of slang and sex and everything. And now Buffy looks a bit like the rule follower, although we have seen Buffy Buffy doesn't love to take orders. She mostly does what she thinks is the right thing to do, but she is more apt to think that it's right to do what she needs to do as a slayer and Faith has no interest in that. Buffy is almost in the middle of Kendra on one end and Faith on the other, which I really love from a writing perspective because they did something so very different with Buffy and Faith versus with Kendra and Buffy. And I feel like some writers might just repeat a similar story because you know the fans liked it and it worked before, but we have this different twist. So Faith, when she is telling Buffy, come on, you really enjoy it, she says something like, come on, tell me that after a fight, if you don't get a kill, you're really dying for some vamps to stake to get in a little, uh. And Buffy says again with the grunting. Neither is able to persuade the other. And when Buffy says something like, we have to go get this amulet, Faith says, tell you what, you do the homework and I'll copy yours, and takes off. And Buffy is left alone looking aggravated. So that could be a major turn, the fact that there is this explicit split where Buffy is left holding the bag. But I still think it comes a little bit later because there was something so dramatic coming up. At the crypt at night, Buffy is alone going there to look for the amulet. There are these cement coffins. The second one she looks in, she finds the amulet. She's about to grab it, but she hears voices. So she dives into the other coffin and slides the lid over herself, which seems to be because there are so many of the vampires. And she listens as they get the amulet. She then slides that top of the coffin off and is surprised by someone above her, which turns out to be Faith. So Faith did come to the crypt, but she is shocked that Buffy is hiding. And Buffy says it was six to one. And Faith tells her, well, it's six to two now. They leave the crypt and they see the last couple of these vampires in their matching outfits. 
uh, I guess I should call them uniforms, that sounds more ominous, jumping down into a manhole. And Faith runs after them and is going to jump in. And Buffy says, wait, stop, think. But Faith says, no, no, no. She is not concerned when Buffy points out they could be going down into a tight space. There are six vampires to, to two slayers. But Faith just says, and there might be more. So come on. And Buffy can't believe just going down there in the manhole is her plan. Now we're at 13 minutes, 59 seconds in, and Faith says, who said I had a plan? I don't know how many's down there, but I want to find out, and I'll know when I land. And if you don't come after me, I might die. And she jumps into the manhole. Buffy rolls her eyes and jumps after Faith. I see this at 14 minutes, 10 seconds in, as the one-quarter twist. It is definitely outside of Buffy. Buffy is no coward, but she would not jump down into that manhole not knowing what's going on. Also, Wesley has said... They're there for this amulet for sentimental reasons. So there isn't, Buffy would certainly do it if someone's life were in danger, but not just to get this amulet. Now Faith knows Buffy is going to dive in after her because now Faith's life is in danger and Buffy can help. So it's from outside Buffy. It forces her to act. It spins our story and raises the stakes because who knows what Buffy and Faith are going to find down there. Today's episode is sponsored by How to Write a Novel, Grades 6 through 8. In this book, which is available as an ebook or workbook, I took my story structure and character points and put them into a book aimed at middle school kids who love to write and who might have a great idea or have written some scenes but not be sure how to turn it into a novel. Admittedly, this is probably a niche audience. It is aimed at kids who were like me at that age when I was scribbling out novels in notebooks but rarely finished one because I didn't quite know how to bring the story together. If you have a creative child or student, this could be a great gift for the holidays or for right now just to help them with something else to do if they are stuck at home a lot, can't get out and see their friends, or are doing remote schooling. I will put a link in the show notes to how to write a novel grades six through eight. And if you do get it for a child that you know who is creative, I would love to hear what they do with the book and uh, what kind of story they're thinking about writing. As Doug Petrie pointed out, this was a reference to Alice in Wonderland, that Faith is going down the rabbit hole and Buffy has to follow her. When we get back, we go to Giles, who is pacing. Wesley is reading one of the Watcher diaries, uh, Giles' early one when he met Buffy, that says the Slayer is willful and insolent. Wesley says that would be our girl. Giles tells him you just have to get to know her and he's worried that she's not back. Wesley is not. He checks his pocket watch. His mission scenario has her back in one minute. This is a nice use of tension. We don't know what's happening with Faith and Buffy and it keeps us engaged and waiting to find out through this quieter scene, which is really just these two watchers talking with a bit of minor conflict. Back with Buffy and Faith, they're fighting. They're surrounded by a whole lot of vampires. They fight well together, but then a couple of the vamps grab Faith. They immobilize her, and another one drowns Buffy. There is a pool of water there. He forces her head underwater, and everything goes quiet. He holds her quite some time until she goes still. This is a callback to the finale of season one where Buffy drowned, the master drowned Buffy in a relatively shallow body of water. Everything slows down. It's very quiet. Faith is struggling. The vampire is smiling. And then Buffy pops up out of that water and says, I hate it when they drown me. 
Doug Petrie pointed out they specifically did this death and resurrection type of imagery, which also called back the baptism and rebirth idea because we're using water. And Buffy comes out of it differently. She has once again faced death, and now she feels more like faith, and we see this change with her. So it's 16 minutes, 15 seconds in when Buffy emerges. She's revitalized. The momentum of the fight shifts. She is able to get those vampires away from Faith. They both fight. They are getting the better of the vampires, but now Faith says, we got to go. And Buffy says they came for the amulet, and they're not leaving without it. And she takes one of the swords, and she gets the amulet with the tip of it. It slides down into her hands, and Faith says, tell me you don't get off on this. And Buffy says, it didn't suck. We next switch to Buffy, telling Wesley that she and Faith got into a serious party situation. But when Giles asks, she says she is of the good. Thank you for asking. So a little bit more sarcastic than we usually see Buffy. She certainly does make light of things and joke, but this has much more of a Faith-like edge. She also comments on how Wesley's nearly extinct demon cult was out in Magnum Force. On her way out, she tells Giles pointedly that they need to talk. Wesley intervenes. She should talk to only him about slaying, and all she has to discuss with Giles is overdue library books. Buffy just looks at Giles and says, we'll talk. And Giles says yes. After she's gone, Wesley tells Giles, you're not helping. And Giles says, I know, I feel just sick about it. This is an example of Wesley coming in and bringing out that other side of Giles. Giles always seemed like the stuffed shirt, the the one who's giving orders. And yes, we saw things about his past that told us he was not always like that. In fact, he was the opposite. But in the present day, in Buffy's world, he is more like Wesley. And Doug Petrie said he really enjoyed writing this Wesley-Giles conflict because before this, Giles always had to be the stuffed shirt, and now we get to see more of his Ripper personality in contrast to Wesley, Um, and Petrie called it the angry kick-ass punk under the Tweed guy. And he also noted that having this interloper there bonds Buffy and Giles more closely, which we have already seen throughout this season, their growing bond, growing relationship. And he said he thinks that Wesley makes Buffy more open to Faith's approach to that more action, no rules, uh, passionate sort of approach to slaying because it's in contrast to Wesley, who is so intense and so much about the rules and orders. We now switch to chemistry class. There is going to be that test, and Buffy, nonetheless, is turned around in her seat, whispering to Willow and Xander about how amazing the night before felt, that she just let go. And Willow, trying to empathize, says she knows what that's like. And Buffy says, I don't think you can. It's kind of a Slayer thing. I don't think I'm explaining it well. And Sanders says, but you're explaining it a lot. The teacher uh, tells them all to be quiet, passes out the test, even specifically tells Buffy to be quiet. She turns around and keeps talking. Willow says, test, you know, the thing Buffy didn't come over to study for. Buffy, though, has noticed that every time she says Faith, Xander's eye twitches. He denies it, but then claims it's because he's highly caffeinated and, quote, some of us actually care about school, which is pretty funny from Xander. And a nice callback to Xander having slept with Faith in the Zeppo. Now Faith knocks on the window from outside, opens it, and says, hey, girlfriend, to Buffy. She then breathes on the window and in the condensation draws a heart with a stake through the middle of it. Willow is shocked when Buffy climbs out. She says, you can't. You can't. Can you? We are now 20 minutes in, and you could see this as Buffy's midpoint commitment. We are not quite at the midpoint of the episode, and I think there is a stronger commitment later, but we are definitely moving that way. As I've talked about, and you probably are tired of hearing, at the midpoint, usually we will see a major reversal for the protagonist, 
or a major commitment to the quest or both. So this story has a lot of momentum because we already have Buffy even a little before the midpoint making a pretty major commitment she has said yesterday that test was important to her college was important to her and she both didn't study which is understandable she had that mission but now she is taking off in the middle of a test faith tells buffy she found a nest of vampires and in the next scene buffy and faith burst into a dark warehouse vampires catch fire we see them raising their stakes to fight and there's a cut to the bronze it is dark presumably evening 90s techno pop music is blaring there are flashing lights on the dance floor and faith and buffy are dancing with each other but amidst a group of guys flirting with all of them buffy though dances away when she sees angel come into the bronze So now we come to what I see as the real midpoint commitment. It's 21 minutes, 16 seconds in, so pretty close to that halfway point. Buffy leaps onto Angel, and he wraps his arms around her to hold on to her, and she wraps her legs around him. It's a very sexy kind of approach to him, and so not like Buffy, who this season has been so cautious about Angel. And he comments on her making new friends on the dance floor. And she says, boys, I like you. Very flirtatious. Doug Petrie said this change in Buffy's behavior, it's much more like Faith. She's ready for bad girl fun. And that it freaks Angel out a little. And you know there's really something wrong when you freak out Angel. And he moves her off of him. And then even as they're talking, they're sitting next to each other. And he shifts to sit across from her, showing that he is not comfortable with this. And also trying to refocus her on why he came there. Which is to tell her that Balthazar the demon is not dead. And that the demon is looking for the amulet because it will restore him to full strength, which nobody wants to see. Buffy tells him it's okay, they have the amulet, and Angel says he knows. Giles said he gave it to, and at that moment, Wesley appears. And Buffy, seeing him, says, ah, speak of the really annoying person. She takes the amulet from Wesley, even though he doesn't admit to having it, she sees that it pooches his jacket. And he's he's very upset that she didn't tell him where she was going, how to reach her, he doesn't know who Angel is. He's still insisting the demon is dead. And Petrie commented that Wesley being so uptight, by contrast, both makes Angel look cooler, although he doesn't need much help at that, but Buffy look badder in contrast to Wesley. And this is a really nice way if you want to either show a change in one of your core characters or prompt a change, or just highlight that other side to them that the viewer doesn't often get to see, or the reader doesn't. And I think it is true to life. We all act somewhat differently depending who we're with. And one friend, or acquaintance, or teacher might bring out a different side of us than another. Buffy gives the amulet to Angel to keep it safe, and ignores Wesley and goes to get Faith. At 23 minutes in, Balthazar is in a giant warehouse and in a giant tub. He is this big blubbery demon with little hands. His acolytes have to ladle water over him to keep him from drying out. And he is yelling at them because he doesn't have his amulet. And one of them tells him a slayer has it. And to the demon, it sounds like excuses. He uses what seems like sort of like the force from Star Wars. He's able to hold out his hands. Uh, which cannot reach anybody but are able to draw this vampire to him, and then he kills it. Faith and Buffy are looking in from outside. Faith wants to go in and take them all, but Buffy says they need more firepower. And there are so many vampires there that Faith more or less agrees and sees a sporting goods store across the street. She and Buffy go over there, and there are guns and bows and arrows and knives and they break in. So now I see this, though it is a little bit later than the midpoint, there is major reversal coming. Buffy's hanging back a little bit, and Faith is just taking what she wants, and she says, when are you going to get this, B? Life as a slayer is very simple. Want, take, 
have. And she breaks a display case with her elbow and grabs a weapon from inside it. Buffy now goes to one of the weapons that attracts her and says, want, take, have. I'm getting it. And she does what Faith did, breaks glass and takes a weapon. But a second later, a gun fires from behind them and it is the police. The cop says, drop your weapons and get down on the ground now. We're at 25 minutes, 35 seconds in, but it very much does feel like a serious reversal for Buffy. And I really feel for her because for the most part, Buffy has been doing what she is supposed to do despite a somewhat different attitude in the last few scenes. And now she does this one thing that's very Faith-like where she is breaking the law and immediately the cops show up. Faith banters with the cops. She's flirting with them as she raises her arms and locks her wrists together. But Buffy looks really uneasy. Even just the way she lifts both hands up tentatively tells us she is really uncomfortable. There in the back of the squad car, the cop asks if, uh, with all those weapons, are they with one of those girl gangs? And Faith says, yeah, we're the Slayers. And he laughs. Faith whispers to Buffy, does she want to get out? Buffy seems skeptical, and Faith says, we can't save the world in jail. So they both slide down, kick at the grill between the front and back seats, and the police car careens to the side, crashes. The car is smoking. The cops are unconscious. Buffy wants to call an ambulance, but Faith says, with the racket they made, five people already have, and these guys are fine. So they get their cuffs off and run. We cut to the next morning. Buffy gets the newspaper from outside the back door. Talk about a different time. She had to wait for that paper to see if there was anything in the news. She is looking through it, and Joyce walks in and says, admit it. Some days don't you want to wake up and say to hell with the diet? Buffy looks very guilty at the admit it statement. She also doesn't want waffles. Joyce tries to talk her into it, saying they only don't have calories if she makes them for Buffy, which is mom logic. She asks what Buffy and Faith did last night. Buffy first says nothing and then nothing big, and Joyce tells her not to worry. She won't meddle in Buffy's slang as long as Buffy's careful, which is also a callback to Gingerbread, where Joyce showed up in the middle of Buffy's slang. Buffy assures her she is careful, but still looks very uncomfortable. We are now in the mayor's office. He's finished a photo shoot with the Boy Scouts, and he closes the blinds and lets Mr. Trick out asks if there's anything new about the Illuminati so now we know the name of this vampire cult and as he's talking he opens that armoire he has in his office with all the creepy stuff in it and one of those Illuminati vampires bursts forth to attack and says in the name of Balthazar die Alan is uh, in the office too. Trick gets the vampire away from the mayor, but the mayor tells him not to stake the vampire. He also turns to Alan and says, isn't there security here? Alan looks so nervous and stutters and says he had no idea. And the mayor says something like, no need to swoon, Alan. Just make sure this doesn't happen again. And he tells Trick to lock up the vampire. Trick says he'll just try to kill you again, and the mayor says he figures he will. Now we see Balthazar really screaming and raging. It's a 100 years since his enemy crippled him, and now ultimate power is within his grasp, and he will not let it happen. I did not notice until preparing for this podcast episode that Balthazar must be referring to the mayor as his enemy, the one who crippled him. I'm not sure why I didn't notice that. Maybe because Balthazar just, in all these scenes, he's kind of screaming and yelling at people. And I think I took it as, you know, this is just Balthazar and I wasn't really listening to his words. At 30 minutes in, Willow is in Buffy's bedroom. She's given Buffy a pouch. It's a, from a spell. There's herbs. It's got lavender and mint. And she says proudly, it's just a little something we witches like to call a protection spell. So we're forgetting that Willow already told Buffy about protection spells back in Gingerbread and that she had been doing one for Buffy's birthday. And I guess this is because of that issue of people often watched out of order 
when the show aired. And they probably, there's so much happening in this episode that they probably didn't want to spend time on dialogue explaining like, hey, I redid this protection spell I was going to do for your birthday. So the dialogue acts as if this is a new thing. But we can tell Willow is uh, very excited about it. So we get the emotions there. And Buffy seems appreciative. And she even smells it and says, oh, you know, usually spell stuff is so stinky. Willow says, yes, you know, that's she wants to be the first Wicca to do her spells and minty freshness. And then she asks, Willow asks about the plan for tonight's slaying. We're going, aren't we? And Buffy says, yes, she's patrolling, but there's a but. She wants Willow to stay home. It's too dangerous. And Willow quite rightly points out that she has been in danger before. I'm thinking of most recently the Zeppo where Willow did that spell to help repel those or fight those very dangerous demons and help to fight the opening of the Hellmouth. But in the middle of the conversation, Faith walks in Buffy leaves with Faith and doesn't even take that pouch with her. Willow sits on Buffy's bed and tosses the pouch down and says, stupid. And I felt so bad for Willow. And this really works on two levels. On the stated level, Willow is Buffy's longtime friend. She has always been there with Buffy from the very beginning and she has helped her fight and they have talked to each other about everything but now Buffy has a slayer friend. This also works if we look at the subtext of Buffy and Faith having a romantic or sexual relationship. We've got Faith with the hey girlfriend and the dancing and Buffy is so caught up in this new relationship like when your friend does have a new love interest And maybe for a while in the beginning is just not that available to her old friends. And Doug Petrie commented on that, that subtext. He said they always enjoyed having that lesbian subtext between Faith and Buffy. And also on the friendship aspect, he said it's, it's like when you're in high school, sometimes your best friend meets a cooler older friend who has a car or something that you just don't have and you are left out. Faith and Buffy in the next scene are walking through an alley. Buffy doesn't look quite as into everything as she was the night before. She just wants to get this done. Faith, though, is just as excited about the hunt and the possible kill. She suggests getting ribs afterwards, and she is holding a bow and arrow that presumably came from that sporting goods store. A vampire leaps out at them, and we cut. If you are enjoying the podcast, please help it reach more listeners by telling a friend who loves Buffy about the show, by posting on social media, or by leaving a review wherever you like to listen to podcasts. You can also help by becoming a patron, which you can do through the link in the show notes or at patreon.com slash lily. that's double L-I, Double L Y. Wesley is saying to Giles that he didn't say Giles had emotional problems, but an emotional problem. Giles argues his attachment to the Slayer is not a problem, but Wesley tells him the way he's handled things is an embarrassment to the council. At 32 minutes, 53 seconds in, I love this quote from Giles. If you want to criticize my methods, fine, but you can keep your snide remarks to yourself. And while you're at it, don't criticize my methods. Wesley is not cowed. He tells Giles he's no longer qualified to act as a watcher. And he says, it's simply time for someone else to take the field. Giles tells him now's a good time to start. Outside of Giles' office, three Illuminati vampires with swords are looking in on them. This is right about uh, 33 minutes in and could be a three-quarter twist in the episode. That is that last major plot turn. It once again spins the story in a new direction, but it usually grows out of the midpoint rather than coming from outside the protagonist. 
So this does spin the plot because before it was first get the amulet, then stop the demon, and now it is save Giles. And Wesley is sort of a, yeah, we got to save him too thing. But it doesn't, I, I don't know that it comes out of the midpoint other than Buffy gave Angel the amulet rather than leaving it with Wesley. Nonetheless, it is a story turn. I think we'll get a greater one that really qualifies as that major plot turn. But it is another example of this episode really moves along. There are major plot turns and twists throughout, as well as so much emotional conflict going on, as we just saw with Giles and Wesley. Back to Faith and Buffy in the alley. Now we are going to get that major turn. One after another, but one at a time, the Illuminati vampires attack Buffy and Faith. One or the other of the Slayers stakes each one. They are still heading for the warehouse to take on Balthazar. Another figure from the shadows grabs Buffy. Um, I went back to see how that happens and it it looks like it's very shadowy it looks like he could be grabbing her neck or maybe her shoulder buffy pushes him away and she realizes he's human but faith is already moving to stake him buffy says faith no but Faith has staked him in the heart, and Alan, it's the deputy mayor, Alan, his back hits the brick wall, and he slides down to the ground. We're at 33 minutes, 51 seconds in when Faith reacts so fast that she doesn't heed Buffy's call and stakes a human being. This is such a major turn, and Doug Petrie commented on it being a major turn for Faith and for the show, because up to that point, they had showed a lot of killing, but it was always supernatural. And the one time, this is my addition, the one time that we saw Buffy think she killed a human, it, it, Ted, it was very serious. She took it very hard. She was very concerned. And now we see, um, Petrie commented, we see Buffy doesn't want to be a bad girl anymore. So I do see this as that major plot turn. I'm not sure if it does arise from the midpoint in this case because you could see Buffy kind of embracing Faith's approach to slaying. If we see that as the midpoint, when Buffy really throws herself in, she's throwing herself at Angel, she leaves class, so she's joining Faith in her approach um, or her philosophy of slaying and life. But would, would that make a difference here? Wouldn't Faith have reacted exactly the same way? And I love that because this is one of the few times that I have seen a story of any type looking closely where it isn't that clear that that major last major plot turn flows from directly from the midpoint and yet it is still such a strong story and I love that because as much as I love this story structure that I talk about and it works really well for me when I'm writing I really appreciate it in stories I read or watch it shows that you don't always have to exactly have that happened to still have such a strong plot with such strong movement that feels organic. And that's really that key of the three-quarter turn coming out of the midpoint. It doesn't feel like something from left field. It shouldn't feel like, oh, hey, the writers just threw this other thing in here. You want, at that stage of the story, pretty much all your events should logically flow from the ones before rather than feeling like random things that are happening. So here, this definitely does not feel random, but we don't necessarily trace it directly to to the midpoint. It definitely, though, flows out of everything that came before. Buffy steps between Faith and Alan. She kneels in front of him. She's telling him not to move. He has his own blood on his hands. Faith, who is standing back, says, I didn't, I didn't know. Buffy wants to call 911, but Faith just looks around, and really, it, it is clear Alan is dying. A second later, he is dead, and Buffy is staring at his face, looking stricken, and we go to a commercial. We return at 34 minutes, 40 seconds in, with a close-up on Alan's frozen face. 
Faith pulls Buffy away, says, we got to go. They leave Alan's body there and run. Faith climbs over a wall. Buffy goes a different direction over a fence, and she runs into Angel. He sees blood on her hand. She tells him it's okay. Don't worry about it. And Angel tells her they got Giles. Faith returns to the alley alone, and she looks at Alan's body, There are sirens in the background, and she kneels down and almost touches his chest. She reaches her hands toward it and then pulls back. Doug Petrie saw this as a true turning point for Faith when she looks at that body, but the audience doesn't yet know what she's going to do. We're going to find out at the end what her decision was and that is the turning point we now are back to balthazar wesley and giles are standing in front of him wesley is shaking and he tells you know mr giles stay calm the important thing is not to panic something like that and giles sarcastically says well thank god wesley's here he was planning to panic and wesley looks at balthazar an acolyte is ladling water over him and says what is that thing and giles says That would be your demon, you know, the dead one. Wesley responds, no need to get snippy. Giles is equally sarcastic with Balthazar. Wesley warns him not to go the demon, but Giles says it doesn't matter. Balthazar is going to kill them anyway. And Balthazar says that's right. Wesley tries to bargain, saying they each have something the other wants. But Balthazar is bored by the idea of a trade, and he says he'll tear off their kneecaps. Wesley blurts out that the slayer gave the amulet to a friend, a tall man. Giles tells Wesley to shut up, but poor Wesley whimpers and says he'd like to keep his kneecaps. Giles proposes that Balthazar let Captain Courageous go, and Giles will tell him what he needs to know. But Balthazar is even more angry. He says there's only one deal, die quickly or die slowly. And he says, the man who has my amulet, what is his name? We're now at the climax where our opposing forces have their final clash and the conflict resolves. 37 minutes, 50 seconds in, We hear Angel say his name is Angel, and he and Buffy come in. We have a great fight scene. Giles fights as well. After Buffy has freed him from his bonds and he gets a sword, he saves Wesley from a vampire. Balthazar is yelling, unacceptable, unacceptable. Once most of the vampires are killed, Balthazar uses that power he has to draw Angel to him. And he is gripping Angel's head, immobilizing him. Buffy sees an electrical light overhead. She grabs this cord and drops it into the tub of water, electrocuting Balthazar. And I couldn't help thinking that, uh, not that I want to give any credit to the council, but this is an example of what Quentin said about slayers, that it isn't all about strength. They have to be resourceful. However, Buffy was plenty resourceful before they did that horrible test on her in Helpless, so that is no excuse for what the council did. So now Balthazar, it seems, has been defeated. But at 39 minutes, 44 seconds in, we get a sort of pop scare, but a good one. Balthazar suddenly opens his eyes again, and he looks really fried. I think there's even smoke coming from him. He calls Buffy Slayer, looks right at her, and tells her she thinks she's won. And he gives this weak little laugh and says, but when he rises, she'll wish Balthazar had killed them all. So he referring, Buffy doesn't know it, he's referring to the mayor, but Buffy just knows there is this greater foe out there. Balthazar shuts his eyes and dies. So this is the first time Buffy learns about this greater evil that's coming. This is the first of two game changers at the end of this episode because while Buffy won this battle, She didn't even know there was this greater war going on. And now she knows that something more dangerous and powerful than Balthazar is going to rise. And this also for the audience leaves a bit of a question there of would it have been better to let Balthazar get that amulet and defeat whatever is coming? We now switch to the mayor. So we're in the falling action part of the story where we resolve subplots and tie up loose ends. So this is the subplot with the mayor 
and whatever he was alluding to in the beginning about the dedication. He is chanting in Latin in this circle with candles around him. And as he chants, everything shakes. There's an earthquake. And when he's done, he his first comment is something like, he doesn't know why Alan didn't make it. It's He's usually so punctual. Doug Petrie said he originally wrote the scene to have the wind blowing when the mayor was chanting. And Marty Knoxon said, can't we do something more? And Petrie joked about, well, we could do an earthquake. And Marty said, yeah, let's do an earthquake. And I, I like that little moment because it is always worth asking yourself, even in what you might think is a somewhat minor detail, is there a way to make this not so much more dramatic, just make it stronger if there's a threat, make this threat look more ominous, heighten the tension, heighten the conflict. And it doesn't have to go to to extremes. Yes, we see this earthquake, everything's shaking, but the floor doesn't crack, the roof doesn't fall in, but the shaking is definitely more visually striking and puts emphasis on the importance of what's happening in a way that wind would not. Now the mayor tells Trick to let the Illuminati vampire out of his cage. So I forgot to mention the vampires there in the cage locked up. The mayor puts two swords in front of the cage, tells Trick to let the vampire out. Vampire grabs the sword, lunges at the mayor, brings it down on the mayor's head, and the mayor's head splits in two. This is not like a gross or bloody effect. We just kind of almost see this like darkness inside his head and then both sides come together again and the mayor looks just fine and very happy. Trick stakes the vampire. The mayor takes out a little notebook uh, with a to-do list and checks off Become Invincible right above meeting with the PTA. And the mayor says this officially commences the 100 days. Nothing can harm him until the ascension. And he says he's feeling chipper. Who's for root beer? So this is really part of that game changer with Balthazar. Now we see the mayor has done this dedication and now is literally invincible. So that wraps up that first game changer. It changes the world going forward and remember that's different than a cliffhanger in a cliffhanger we don't resolve our main plot so literally the protagonist is about to teeter off a cliff or is on the way down a cliff certain to die and we cut and the viewer or reader has to come back for the next installment to find out what happens here the main plot resolved Buffy killed Balthazar and stopped him saved Giles but the world changes. Everything will be different going forward, and that's what happens here. Everything will be different now that there is this foe, the mayor, who has become invincible. Now we come to our second game changer. Faith is in her motel in the bathroom, washing a tank top in the bathroom sink. Doug Petrie commented she's washing out the blood, like in Macbeth. Buffy comes to the door. After Faith lets her in, Buffy asks how Faith is, and Faith says she's all right, and she claims there's nothing to talk about. She was just doing her job. Buffy says being a slayer is not the same as being a killer. She also urges Faith not to shut her out, that they can help each other, and Buffy clearly doesn't believe it when Faith says she doesn't need help. Oh, and Buffy says sooner or later they're going to find the body, and Faith says, okay, we're only going to have this conversation once. She tells Buffy there's no body. She took it, weighted it, and dumped it. So now we know what Faith did after that moment in the the alley and Buffy says getting rid of the body doesn't make the problem go away and Faith says for her it does and Buffy tells her you don't get it you killed a man but Faith smiles and says no you don't get it I don't care and she looks like she means it so this is the other game changer. Now it is not just that Faith is a little more action-oriented or a lot more action-oriented, dives in first without a plan, and Buffy is more about the planning, more willing to go with the program. This is a major 
division, we already know Buffy cannot live with the idea of having killed a human being. And even though she didn't kill the man, she was there and she feels for Faith. She imagines Faith feels the way she does. And Faith is saying, no, I don't and I don't care. Also, if we see Bad Girls and the next episode, Consequences, as a two-part story, as a single-story arc, this would be an amazing midpoint. And it is, obviously, it's at the end of the one episode. It is the midpoint, a major reversal for Buffy. She has gone along with Faith. Now a man is dead, and she's found out that this bond she's forming with Faith, that they are so much more different than she thought, or that Faith is completely unable to deal with it, and Buffy is worried for Faith's emotional well-being, her her life as a slayer. So serious reversal here if we see the story that way. So that is it for this episode, though I do have some spoilers and foreshadowing, and I hope you will stick around for that. If you don't, thank you so much for listening, and a special thank you to all the patrons who support the show and help it to continue. I hope you will all come back next Monday for the aptly named Consequences, where Faith and Buffy deal with the fallout. And we are back for spoilers and foreshadowing. That very first scene in the graveyard, Buffy is struggling, a vampire is about to kill her, and Faith stakes the vampire from behind. And we will see that repeated in much more dire circumstances in the climax of Consequences. So it is, it is if we see this as a two-part story, a real bookend for that story. Cordelia has a little foreshadowing here too when she taunts Xander and says, but my father has a job. We will see in this season Cordelia's father lose everything and this will have repercussions not just for Buffy but for the series Angel where we'll see Cordelia struggling trying to become an actress and living in an apartment that has bugs. Um, I don't think we see the bugs or roaches, which I appreciate, but really living in really difficult circumstances because now her family has no money and she also couldn't go to college. So irony and foreshadowing there. Buffy going off with Faith is a bit of a foreshadowing of season four when Buffy meets Riley and Willow even helps her connect with Riley to some extent and then Buffy is so absorbed in all things Riley but also in her slang that Willow once again feels somewhat left out. I'll talk about it more in season four. I feel like some of that conflict doesn't feel organic to me. It feels a bit manufactured. Maybe I'll think differently when we get there. It is interesting that we are setting up Willow is always such a great friend to Buffy and maybe with a minimal exception of when Buffy came back from having run away no no one treated Buffy really well other than Giles but for the most part Willow has really been there for Buffy and Buffy does seem to have this tendency of, oh, I have this new relationship and I'm so into it and excited about it and kind of neglecting or leaving Willow out, which interestingly never, never happened with Angel. So I don't, I don't know what that says, but good work by the writers for at least setting that up a bit because we're going to see that with Riley. Foreshadowing for this season, there is a bit more faith with that bow and arrow in the alley scene that is a foreshadowing and I didn't notice this myself Doug Petrie commented on it of when in a later episode toward the end she will shoot Angel with a bow and arrow also Petrie commented that the knives that Buffy and Faith took 
from the sporting goods store, they will later fight each other with those knives. However, I see a little bit of a flaw there because the police came in and uh, stopped Faith and Buffy. And I'm thinking that they did not let them keep the weapons that they stole. But there is certainly a symbolic foreshadowing there. Even if it's a different bow and arrow or different knives, we still get that Faith and Buffy getting these weapons together that they will use against one another. If we're looking at consequences as a separate story, for the most part, it is, it does have its own story arc, just as Bad Girls does. But is Faith staking Alan the story spark for consequences? So I will try to remember to explore that next Monday. Another season four foreshadowing that I find really intriguing and never noticed before here when Buffy says being a slayer is not the same as being a killer. In season four, when Faith has taken over Buffy's body, and she has been in some ways behaving a little more like Buffy, and people are treating her more like Buffy, and we start to see more of the effect of that when she is leaving the fraternity house, which is also the initiative. And one of the guys, I think it's Forrest, taunts her and calls her a killer and she says something like I'm not a killer I'm a slayer and he says what do you care what I think and she says I don't and she leaves but she is echoing what Buffy said to her and what she disagrees with and pushes against through much of the series from here through almost the end She doesn't really want to make that distinction, slayer, killer, and yet it does start to take hold within her. For now, though, she is claiming she doesn't care about having killed a human. And we will see more of that next time in Consequences. So that is it for this episode and foreshadowing. I hope you'll come back next Monday for Consequences, where faith takes another significant turn. If you would like to comment on the show, you can email me, lisa at lisalily.com, or tweet me at Lisa Amazon Marie Lily, hashtag Buffy Story. Music for this episode was composed and performed by Robert Newcastle. Buffy and the Art of Story is a production of Spiny Woman, LLC. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved.